Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on February 13, 2020. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Today, I'm delighted to be talking with Dr. Francoise Baylitz, university research professor at the NTE Impact Ethics Interdisciplinary Research Team based at the Faculty of Medicine, Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada. She's a member of the Order of Canada and the Order of Nova Scotia, as well as a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. In 2017, she was awarded the Canadian Bioethics Society Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, that is merely one entry on a page of her CV that lists her many honors and awards. She's a distinguished researcher and prolific scholar with 200 or so books, refereed publications, and chapters to her name. Her latest book, published by Harvard University Press, is Altered Inheritance, CRISPR and the Ethics of Human Genome Editing, which has just been nominated for an Association of American Publishers Professional and Scholarly Excellence or Prose Award. A big welcome to the pod. Well, thank you for having me. So let's begin with some leveling up because we never know quite who's listening to this. What is CRISPR other than an acronym that doesn't really help me anymore? Uh, what is CRISPR and exactly how does it work? Well, as you suggested, CRISPR is an acronym and it's for clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. And for most people, that doesn't mean much of anything. <laughs> so I I think the easiest way to think about this is it's a relatively new technology. I say relatively new because this work really is dated to about 2012. And since then, people have been trying to refine it and take it further. And there are new technologies, even uh, as we speak on the horizon in terms of things like uh, base editing or prime editing, etc. But what this is, is it's a technology that allows scientists to go in and to make changes to the DNA that's in our cells. And most people will know we refer to our DNA as the genetic code of life, things like that. Uh, different people have different sort of metaphors for it. But the idea is that the scientists would be able to go in, identify a piece of DNA that is thought to be problematic. I say that vaguely because problematic could mean normal, but not sufficiently enhanced, or it could mean perceived as a disabling trait, the cause of a particular uh, life threatening illness. And the idea is to go in and to make changes to the DNA. And that can be done in a number of ways. But the idea is you're actually going to go and cut the DNA. And then you would either add information, delete information or modify information. And to an extent, it, the technology leverages the bacteria sort of immune system that's in the, the DNA to enable them to target these areas and so on? Well, basically, it's almost as if the scientist in a, is in a position to kind of hijack the natural repair mechanism of the cell because our DNA breaks all the time um, and the cell needs to be able to put those pieces of DNA back together. So sometimes, for example, a scientist will simply make a cut in a particular place so there's a disruption and just rely on the cell to mend itself and the hope is that in that process, certain changes could take place. Um, in other cases, the idea idea is to actually remove a number of what are called the base pairs because you think that it's uh, additional base pairs that are the source of the problem. So it really depends on what the goal is uh, in terms of the actual change to the DNA. But yes, the idea is to go in and to uh, use a cell repair mechanism that's already in place. And the difference here is that instead of relying on the cell using its sister DNA to make the change, you're actually sending
sending in mm-hmm. the new coding that yes. you're wanting. So you're trying to make a very specific targeted change. So let's assume uh, hypothetically that you have the patents, both patents. <laughs> All the patents in the world. <laughs> All the patents in the world. They are they are they are free of challenge. There are no compulsory licenses or anything like that going on, and uh, you are going to make a, a pitch to venture capitalist investors, right, for your business, your CRISPR business. How would you pitch it? What What's the, the sort of the best case scenario, the kind of this is why you should invest in my technology sort of pitch? Well, I think most people, when they imagine that kind of a scenario, would be wanting to place considerable emphasis on the distinction between uh, genome editing of somatic cells and genome editing of germ cells. Very simply, when we talk about somatic cells, we're talking about your body cells. So it could be your hair, your skin, your blood, your neurons, etc. And the idea there is that when you make changes to a somatic cell, those changes are uniquely in the person. Those changes die with the person. Right now, when people talk about making those changes, they're typically targeting uh, therapeutic goals or objectives, so treatments, or at least that's what they imagine. If we talk a minute about germ cells, then you're really talking about your reproductive cells. So you're talking about your gametes, the sperm and the egg, but also the precursor cells that make sperm and egg. And often we're also talking about about the very early one-cell human embryo. In that context, if you do the exact same manipulations, because you're making them to reproductive cells, those changes, in fact, will not die off with the patient. They will be carried on through subsequent generations. So if I'm actually trying to make a pitch right now, if I'm making a pitch around somatic cell genome editing, it's thought to be less controversial because we're basically continuing to pursue a goal or objective that, broadly speaking, we endorse, all that's changing is the means. And so we're committed to helping patients with suffering. We have, you know, depending on how you want to count, 25, 35, 45 years of experience with gene therapy. And so the idea is kind of already there, and we're just bringing a new technology to something we're comfortable with. When you look at the other, you're looking at germline interventions. Up until this point in time, anything we've done that affects the next generation has been using technologies of selection. What we're seeing with this technology, and arguably with an earlier technology that's different, uh, but it's referred to as mitochondrial replacement therapy, we're actually moving into design. And so now we're looking not at choosing amongst the embryos that are available to us, but actually taking embryos and making manipulations. Many people would argue that that's, you know, crossing the Rubicon, that that's a different kind of activity, and that we shouldn't do that until we've had a fairly broad societal conversation working towards consensus about do we take on that evolutionary project? So if I were looking for investors, I'd be sticking with, you know, what we know and understand is a goal that by and large people would support. And I'd be saying, you know, this happens to be the latest, most recent technology. It may not be the one that finally delivers what we're hoping for, but it's on that pathway. And it's a pathway that people, I think, are committed to. This isn't our first biological determinism rodeo, right? I mean, bioethicists have had to traverse hereditary determinism eugenics. 
mechanics. Uh, the expression designer babies was coined long ago to describe selective breeding. Along, then along came Louise Brown and IVF and Dolly the sheep and uh, the widespread use of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and so on. Um, so you, you would put sort of the somatic cell manipulation sort of into that general sort of mix, albeit it's a more sophisticated version. But as a bioethicist, you see it sort of being sort of comfortably placed in that sort of genre and kind of the issues that came up in discussions of those technologies? Well, I think a little bit yes and a little bit no, partly because when I think about, you know, if we go back to things like the birth of Louise Brown, the cloning of Dolly the sheep, those kinds of examples that you were providing, I would put those examples by and large in this broad category of selection. We're still selecting amongst that which we find in nature. And the difference here, as I was suggesting, is that we're not actually happy with whatever we're finding in nature, and we're actually wanting to do some manipulation. So I think there's a different kind of hubris involved with this second project that imagines that we actually can be effective designers and improve upon that which would otherwise be merely available to us in terms of selection. Now, I understand people would contest that description. So some people would say, no, it's a design project, even when I do something as simple as picking my, you know, sexual partner, I've, I've you know, have assumptions about how that that's going to work. But I think a, a really important point that I think, you know, you're alluding to has to do with this kind of idea that somehow it's uh, something that's legitimate for us to take on as a design project, because we're humans, and humans are supposed to use their brain and their intelligence to improve their situation. And yet, I think also at the same time, you know, something you're also alluding to is that there's a lack of sophistication almost in endorsing a kind of genetic determinism as though that's all that matters. We just have to fix these genes and we're going to get whatever, you know, we think is going to be the ideal world. And the problem with that is we know better, right? We know about gene environment interaction. We understand how complicated things are. Um, and that complexity is even just within the realm of genetics. I mean, a lot of the examples given are single gene disorders that people talk about, whether it's cystic fibrosis or Huntington's, etc. And many of the, the traits that we're actually interested in are actually multifactorial. Um, and as I said, we really need to pay attention to the epigenetics. Let's assume you are representative of bioethicists and you make this uh, at least current distinction between editing somatic and germline cells with the flexibility that in future you may you may change your mind slightly you you may reposition that how broadly do you think scientists governments researchers generally agree with the necessity as you see it to draw that line at the moment i think for pragmatic reasons people are pretty committed to drawing that line regardless of where they fall on the spectrum of ethically permissible or not. And I think largely it's because it's simple. And that has both, you know, strengths and weaknesses attached to it. And so the idea is you don't have to think too deeply about what we're doing and about what the ethical issues are, because this is relatively speaking, common, understood, accepted. And that's making interventions in somatic cells for what we would think of as therapeutic goals or purposes. The other is thought to be more controversial. And so if you're trying to avoid 
controversy. It's like, well, let's not talk about that. That's the thing that's questionable. That's the thing that's terrible. That's the thing that whatever. But you basically want to put that aside in order to avoid controversy. I think we can't do that for a number of reasons, because first of all, even in the context of somatic cell genome editing, you could have an effect on the germline that was a side effect, an unintended, unwanted yep. consequence. So there's always going to be that possibility in some sense. But I think also beyond that, the simple divide that we have um, is sort of hinting at a moral demarcation line that's not, in fact, robust. And I think that this becomes especially clear when people try to do the same thing along a different axis and draw the distinction between therapy and enhancement and want to try and suggest the very same thing. Therapy good, enhancement bad. That, too, is not a robust moral demarcation line. First of all, because many of the things you're going to want to do in a health context are actually not going to be about therapies. They're going to be about prevention. So, you know, in this context, there's been a lot of conversation about a genetic vaccine. Well, that's not a treatment. That's actually an enhancement. But people want to keep it on the health-related side of things yeah. because people think that's positive. So I think that already suggests to you, well, then it's not going to be a really tight line between therapy good, enhancement bad. And, you know, a vaccine would be an example of an enhancement good in the abstract. All right. So sort of more convenient labeling, sort of transitional labeling around a gradient. Right. Yes. And again, I would suggest to you that it's strategic. It's a political choice. And I think the reason for that is, again, trying to make sure that something can get off the ground. So you're trying to sort of put some, uh, you know, context for something that would be non-controversial. And so if you want to decide to move forward, you know, with a particular kind of novel technology, you're not going to say, well, this is the weirdest, wonderful thing I can do with it. You're going to say, this looks just like what you're used to. You're used to us committing resources. And here I'm thinking time, talent, treasure. Uh, you're used to us committing resources to the health field, to the treatment of patients, to the reduction of suffering, etc. So give us that. And then, of course, over time, you can normalize those behaviors and then society might move further along a particular pathway with you. But I think it's really important to appreciate um, that that's actually, I think, in some measure short-sighted. And we should, in fact, take on uh, the challenges that these uh, technologies represent. And I think one of the reasons to do that is there are contexts within which I would say some of this technology actually makes no sense in terms of some of the therapeutic goals or objectives, largely because we have existing technologies that could achieve those goals and objectives in a safer and more affordable, more accessible way. The thing we can't do uh, in you know that context right now would be to be making genetic changes with the goal of enhancement. But we need to remember that as a society, we're already pretty committed to the concept of enhancement. I mean, that's what we do all the time, right? That's what people at universities are about. That's what people, you know, parents who try to offer their children, you know, piano lessons because it's going to help them with their math skills or whatever the belief is. The point is that there's this commitment to it's a good thing to improve our lot in life and, you know, to use a variety of means to achieve that goal. And it might be cosmetic surgery, it might be higher education. And then the question is going to be, well, if I can, you know, use chemicals and I can use surgery and I can use, you know, psychotherapy, why can't I also use genetics to try and improve uh, my current situation? Why do I need to bribe a university official to allow my child in um, pretending 
she's a tennis star or something like that, when I could actually use that same money to actually make her a tennis star or future right. tennis star or something like that. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's a really good example to give because that actually hints at one of the real worries with this technology in that context, which is the idea that actually it would only be accessible to a segment of society. Yeah. And so what we would be doing is, again, responding to the desires and interests of a select elite and basically providing them with an opportunity to entrench their existing privilege in their DNA. And I think many people are worried about that, and I think rightfully so. What will be the consequences of this kind of move or maneuver, if you will? That squarely is within the next uh, part of the book I want to move on. As a lawyer, of course, I'm scanning the table of contents, and I'm like, ah, chapter six, harms and wrongs. This is where I should be. There are some extreme examples, I guess, of, of where some have identified harms, as is well known in September of last year, a Chinese court sentenced uh, He Jiankui, the scientist who made the first, allegedly made the world's first genetically ed edited babies, which in turn excited a, a global uproar. And he was sentenced to three years in prison for, quote, conducting an illegal medical practice, according to Chinese state media. Yet in spite of warnings from uh, bioethicists and uh, the Chinese government there, uh, we know that research is ongoing in the U.S. and elsewhere, and with NIH funds in some cases. I mean, the big cancer project at the University of Pennsylvania, for example. So at least from my perspective, I do need to sort of center this within some of the regulatory frameworks that might apply. And we know, for example, that, I mean, some of the, some of the kind of regulation is somewhat orthogonal, right, in that, you know, we've had UK restrictions on aspects of surrogacy, including payment, which kind of defines part of our regulatory space. Canada bans the purchasing of eggs, I believe, still in the US, uh, beginning with the 2016 Appropriations Act, Congress has annually prohibited the FDA from approving germline technologies, which sort of basically, sort of, if they don't have the money to do it, they're not going to do it. Then there's sort of some companies, hopefully not the um, startup that you were pitching earlier, <laughs> which are trying to sort of follow some of the genetic testing product models and selling um, direct-to-consumer products that presumably at least promise that you can do your own gene editing at home. And uh, uh, the FDA has been quite vocal, uh, saying that uh, uh, any of these do-it-yourself kits are devices um, uh, and clearly unlawful, they would not be approved. At the state level, we are seeing some states passing consumer protection type laws saying that, for example, sellers of DIY CRISPR kits must include special consumer protection notices, right? Saying, for example, that dumb labeling that CRISPR kits are not intended for self-administration, which is really not a particularly effective warning since you just bought a kit for self-administration. Then at the university sort of research institution level, whether NIH funded or not, we have human subjects research protocols, uh, IRB supervision, consent, and so on. You work in a, a, a medical research environment. When you look at those kind of regulatory pieces, is, is there enough out there at the moment? Or should, while bioethicists are, are, are 
building their frameworks do you think lawyers should be building uh, bigger and better mousetraps? Well, it's interesting. I think that uh, I think the best place to start in terms of trying to answer kind of that sweeping question is to go back to the the opening line uh, and this notion of harms and wrongs. And I think that one of the things that someone like myself with a background in philosophy and bioethics wants to do is shine a light on the following. It's to say that in the context of this and any other kind of technology, you want to be sure that you're offering people something that's safe and effective. Safe, you don't want to hurt people. Effective, you don't want to sell them a bill of goods. And we certainly have recent experience with that if you think about the current situation with various privatized stem cell clinics offering all kinds of interventions. So we have that in the background in terms of things we might think about. But when I'm talking about harms and wrongs, I'm wanting to insist on the fact that you could in fact have a technology that is safe and effective and might still be wrong. And so I think for some people that's hard to grasp. Uh, People think that, look, if it's safe and effective, then it's for me to decide how I want to spend my money. And part of what I'm trying to say back is I don't think that applies generally, but I certainly don't think it applies here. And I offer up a number of reasons in support of that belief. One of those reasons is that this is a project that by and large is about taking over the human evolutionary story. And so part of me is saying, well, you know, it's not about whether it's safe and effective. It's about whether or not that's a reasonable goal and objective. And do that, you know, is is that something we should be doing? And in that context, I've been defending this notion of broad societal consensus, which really is a claim about a certain kind of uh, commitment to democracy, and to saying that if you really want to engage in this project of volitional evolution, uh, it's not for an elite group of scientists or investors or governments to decide, it's for the people to decide. Now, there's lots more I could say about that, but that's showing you the orientation. Then we come back to actually, you know, your second point where you're giving a number of questions, examples about what might be thought of as black letter law in a number of jurisdictions. And one of the realities of that is we're approximately 200 countries. And uh, it is not the case that all 200 countries are going to have the same laws. And I would go further and say it's not likely that all 200 countries are going to have any laws. And that's because for many jurisdictions, jurisdictions, this isn't a priority. Uh, It's not a priority in terms of where they want to invest uh, their public monies. It's not a priority in terms of, you know, other things that they have to respond to in terms of high needs for their population, etc. And policymaking and lawmaking is labor intensive. And so if you're not thinking of yourself as an active player in terms of the science, etc., why would you take up the talent, even of your lawmakers, to do this kind of work? So I think that then gets us to your next point about then well, how do you think about this globally? And I can honestly say a number of people in this area are worrying about that question and are recognizing that you will, in fact, not be able to stop, you know, every single scientist who might have a crazy idea about what they do or don't want to do. And people label those people as the rogue scientists. Um I'm sometimes leery to use that term because it has been applied to Jean Cuhay, and I actually think that's a mistake, but that's a a separate conversation. But if the question is, you know, can you stop the scientists from doing things that are crazy? You can't stop people from doing things that are crazy. You might punish them afterwards, but you couldn't necessarily stop them. And so then the question is, what do we actually know about the current situation globally? So I've been doing some research. It's not published yet, but based on the countries that uh, we've been looking at, and it's not a comprehensive survey because it's very difficult to get access 
opposed to all the pieces of legislation that may or may not be around. But we've been able to identify more than 50 countries that have explicit prohibitions. And that's actually quite high relative to uh, the number of places that have any kind of legislation. So I think that's significant. Many people don't pay attention to the fact that we have something called the Oviedo Convention, um, and it has been ratified by 29 different countries, and that, in fact, includes a prohibition on making heritable uh, changes to the genome. And so there are a number of countries around the world that have said no. Uh, and in, you know, in some cases, it's a robust no, meaning it's entrenched in law, and it will take a fair bit of effort to change that law. In other places, this is uh, in research ethics guidelines, and it's perhaps subject to uh, change or or interpretation in a way that might be different. But by and large, it is not the case that we have jurisdictions around the world that have actively discussed this and made plans to endorse this legally and create a governance framework to move it forward. So we don't have that as yet. The sort of framework that you would be thinking of, I, I would guess, would be something like the UK has done with with surrogacy and with IVF and, and that kind of model. I'm actually not convinced that that's the right way to go. I do know that many people often turn to the United Kingdom and they make reference to the uh, Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority as uh, an ideal model. But I think, you know, any kind of legal model has to take account of the jurisdiction within which it's working. And there's a culture that will support certain kinds of governance frameworks. So it's not clear to me that that model can work in other countries. And I think I say that with a fair measure of confidence because I think of my country, Canada, where I come from, as very similar to the United Kingdom. Uh, we are still, in some sense, uh, part of that uh, monarchy. Uh, we have the Queen and her representatives in our country still. But we tried to have something very similar to the HFEA. In law, it was called Assisted Human Reproduction Agency for issues around reproductive technologies. And it, we were not able to sustain that. And it, in fact, no longer exists. So I think that really gave me some sense of even countries that you think of as being relatively similar in terms of their legal structure, their healthcare system, etc., that the governance mechanism doesn't transpose all that easily. So I certainly think it's worth looking at what the United Kingdom has done and what other countries have done. But I think it probably will end up being much more country-specific in terms of what can work. Um, and I... For me, what works is something that's sustainable. And, you know, you can have something, but if, if you don't have the endorsement of the people behind that kind of structure, it's not going to work. And I think, you know, we also have to pay attention to the fact that different countries have uh, different political systems and different kinds of things are going to work in a more democratic versus a more socialist versus a more authoritarian kind of system. And so I think we have to think of this as much more tailor-made. So the question becomes, can we have a common big picture, even if we we have different mechanisms in different yeah, countries. More local consensus driving more context appropriate. I think so. And I think, you know, this is an area in which we're going to have to be very creative on at least two axes. I think one of them is going to be, you know, what's going to be the right blend of carrot and stick, you know, or what's going to be the right blend of, you know, punitive legal structures with things like the threat of going to jail or being fined, as has happened, versus, you know, no, we're going to create certain kinds of incentives that will keep you on this side of the line. Um, and so I think we need to think about that. Are we working with moral 
persuasion or are we working with, you know, punishment frameworks? I think in addition to that, we also need to think carefully about um, what's the way in which we will use resources, uh, you know, it, to either support research in a particular context or to support the delivery of that knowledge in the context of therapeutic intervention. So we need to think very clearly about that as well. Uh, and I don't think we've done that work yet. In the wrongs and harms uh, chapter, you spend quite a lot of time talking about fairness and justice issues. You already gave one example, which was the sort of the differential access kind of idea. But you also discuss vulnerable populations, such as the exploitation of egg providers. And you talk a fair bit about uh, discrimination, stigmatization, and marginalization, particularly uh, with regard to those with we generally refer to as, as having disabilities right. um, across a broad swathe. Uh, you talk about Down syndrome, things like deafness, which is sort of, right. sort of a, a broad sort of range. And uh, that would be interesting because I think where we do most countries, certainly Western Westernized countries, and they don't even have to be solidarity countries, most countries when they see discrimination, sometimes marginalization, occasionally stigma, those are areas where you can build consensus. You can build a political consensus, a legal consensus to do something about that. So it'd be good to talk a little bit about, about that space. So I think it's a very difficult space to navigate, largely because it is culturally informed. And I think a very good example to start with is what happened in China. So there, you know, we have a scientist who in 2018 announces to the world that he has created genome-edited twins to provide them with resistance to HIV. Many people object and say this isn't even a serious condition that you're intervening in, that there are many other ways of uh, addressing the risk of transmission, etc. And one of Jean Cuhay's responses is, well, that's fine for you to say in your country, but in my country, there is tremendous stigma that comes with a diagnosis of HIV. And I think that, you know, we have to pay attention when people make those kinds of claims and not just be dismissive as though our experience is, you know, in some sense, global. So that's a clear example where a claim was being made about stigma as a reason to seriously in engage with this particular condition. Now, I'm not defending what he's done. In fact, I think it's very foolish, and I would say worse than that. But my point is, it's an example where the claim, the justification that's being offered by the scientists has to do with this concern about stigma. Again, if we think about really concrete examples, Jean Cuhay did this work and publicized it in uh, November of 2018. By June of 2019, we have a Russian scientist, Denis Rebrikov, who comes along and says, I'm going to do exactly the same thing, but I'm going to do a better job than Jean Cuhay because from his perspective, he knows better. And one of the differences he says is I'm actually going to go after the very same gene, CCR5, and I'm going to look at the same mutation, Delta 32, but I'm going to start with women who are HIV positive in that couple rather than the male being HIV positive because then we have a different kind of risk of transmission in terms of vertical transmission from the pregnant woman to the offspring. And in that context, one of the things that becomes very interesting is he is unable to enroll women who are HIV positive, want to get pregnant, and want to be in his trial. And so, you know, he's taken aback in some sense, I presume. He can't actually go forward with his plan, not because he thinks he has a bad plan, and not because the state has intervened to say you can't do it, but he literally can't find people that 
want to participate. Well, he then says, okay, well, I'll look for something else. And the examples he comes up with are uh, um, blindness, um, dwarfism, and deafness. And you want to sit there and think, like, wow, why did you move from HIV to those three? Um, and since then, you know, in October, he said, okay, I actually have identified some couples. And he's actually then looking at deafness, which is the GJB2 gene for a particular kind of hereditary deafness. And, you know, it seems to the world like he's just barreling along. And that's a really good example of a different facet of your question, which is that members of the deaf community are pushing back and saying, we don't have a disability and thank you very much. We don't need you to fix us. We're just fine. And the fact that you don't speak our language doesn't mean that you, you know, get to impose upon us our way of being in the world. Now, having said that, I'm absolutely sure that the deaf community is not monolithic, that there is heterogeneity, that people have different perspectives. But I think the claim that's being made is that we are a community and we are not a disabled group in your traditional sense or understanding of us needing to be fixed. If any fixing needs to happen, it's in society and making sure that we are not excluded from the benefits that are available to those who are part of the hearing community, and that the hearing community doesn't impose its way of being in the world on us because we have a rich culture of our own. One of the dangers that you, you point to in, in this area is that the more that scientists would engineer out particular traits, then that would reduce the number of persons with with these traits, let's call them disabilities for the sake of argument, which would make it more likely as a, as, a, as a shrinking minority that they are further marginalized and further stigmatized. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's important to say that, you know, I'm not the person who's developed that argument. I'm really just repeating what members of the deaf community articulate very powerfully. And they shine a light on this and use the language of eugenics to say, how is this any different than engineering out traits that you've decided are, you know, substandard in some sense. And so there's a real calling into question because there's no way of making that kind of a change without, in fact, affecting a whole community and basically disempowering them in terms of their ability to make demands of the state to respond to the needs that they have in order to navigate this world. So I think it's a very powerful claim and we ought to pay attention to it. And, you know, so here are the two examples that are out there in the world right now publicly, one of them having been attempted in terms of HIV resistance, one of them being proposed in terms of deafness, and both of them are controversial for different kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. And I think it really then behooves us to step back and ask what I say is the important question, which doesn't start with the technology. It's not should we or shouldn't we do CRISPR. The important question is what kind of world do we want to live in? And then when you have an answer to that question, which by the way, you need for any technology, you can then turn around and say, okay, how will this technology, how will CRISPR or whatever comes along next, whether it's base editing, prime editing, whatever, how will this help me build that world? So a lot of my work is really about trying to get people to pull back and take time to engage with what I think is the most important question. What kind of world do we want to live in? How do we imagine that world? And how can we then do what we're supposed to be good at, which is use our, our, our capacities, our brain power, etc., to figure out how the technology will help us build that world? And I detected um, a fair amount of skepticism about being able to rely on the scientific community without sort of external normative nudging and so on. I was just thinking about you coming in uh, and, and, and talking to me and others 
I, I joked to a, a friend the other day that um, there's an old Chinese proverb that for every uh, CRISPR scientist we put in jail, we fund 100,000. Um, and in the book, I think you quote from uh, Stephen Pinker, who suggests that bioethics should just, quote, get out of the way. Is there hope that the scientists will listen to consensus? Well, my hope is that they'll be part of building the consensus. I mean, I am not of the view that there's not a very important role for scientists to play in this conversation. And in fact, I have a whole chapter describing the different ways in which scientists are contributing to the conversation. I think what I'm saying is um, this is not a conversation that is for them alone. And I'm clearly saying that it's too important to be left to a community, whether it's the scientific community, as I said, or the business community, etc. So I think that's the claim I'm making. In the context of science, I'm advocating for something that goes under the banner of slow science. And basically, it's an invitation to the scientific community to not just keep racing. And notice I didn't say racing ahead. <laughs> and to not assume that we know what counts as progress if we haven't had a conversation about about this. So my starting assumptions are that scientists are by and large really smart people. Another starting assumption is that most of them want to make the world a better place. Another starting assumption is that for those working in this area, this is really cool science, and that sometimes you're just tripping over yourself to do really cool science, where what you need is the broader scientific community to endorse the slowing down so that you ask better questions and you use your talents more effectively to get where we're all hoping to get to. Um, and we can't do that if we're not going to spend the time figuring out where we want to get to. And I don't think, as a starting point that we all have a similar idea of what that future might look like. But we could learn a lot uh, in terms of where we take the science if we just tried to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of at the end of the book and to, to end here, uh, you make a plea, quote, I want for all of us to reflect on whether heritable human genome editing is a boon or a threat. And I guess uh, there's some fascinating stuff in, in one of the chapters about where you discuss the various types of uh, consensus, consensus building and, and their, their pros and cons and so on. But I guess my, my question on that reflection that we should be doing is how optimistic are you given the times that confront us? Uh, we're surrounded by tribalism, nativism, decisional binaries that reject nuance and kind of riffing off what you were just saying of slowing down market demands always for fast science. And so I, I wonder just to close your, your uh, what are the odds here? Okay, well, so I'm often uh, described by some people as a pessimist in terms of what I think will happen. Uh, but I think where there is for me optimism is that if I and other people who might be like-minded could get enough people to just want to start the conversation, I think the outcome will be different just by virtue of having tried to have a conversation. I think that it's really important if we can make that first step to just say this isn't about a scientific elite dragging the world wherever they want to go and perhaps not even doing it intentionally. I think that if we do that, we will learn a lot about better ways of doing science generally. I really do believe that CRISPR is just this moment in time, this instance, and that if we do CRISPR right, it will not just be about how can we maximize money, how can we maximize opportunities for individual scientists, it will be about shining the light on the ways in which we do research that perhaps don't best serve our interests. And I don't pretend to know the answers. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things I find quite interesting is right now, in the context of the 
concerns about the spread of coronavirus, we're seeing people who are saying actively the current ways in which we do science actually are would be impeding our ability to respond to this. And people talk about specifically things like competition, patents, paywalls, and they're saying, but look, we've had to set all those aside in the context of this common threat. And so I'm trying to suggest if we thought about the human genome in the same way, that it's not that there's an external threat, but there's actually an internal threat that we're just kind of racing ahead doing something that we might be able to pull back and say, well, what are the things that we've put in place that actually don't allow us to pursue whatever our common goal might be? And then why don't we pull back a little bit more and figure out what that common goal should be? We may never reach it. But if we try, we're going to have a different conversation, which means we're going to have a different kind of outcome historically in terms of where things do or don't end up. And I guess my hope is I really would like part of this conversation to intersect with the beginnings of another conversation around climate. We're starting to get to a point where at least a certain cadre of society is worried about what gets called climate change or the climate crisis, etc. And I want to say back, remember what we know about gene-environment interaction? Like, we should be paying attention to both parts of that at the same time. So I understand that for many people, the focus on the genome seems quite esoteric, uh, especially, you know, if you're uh, somebody who's struggling to put food on the table, you know, you're not really all that interested in having a deep conversation about genome editing. And I get that. But there's another part of me that wants to say, if you succeed at putting food on the table and your children are going to survive, you have to have some interest in the world they're going to survive into. And that is going to include our ability to make changes to our environment and to ourselves. And so it's in that context that I'm saying, let's start the conversation now because we probably have 30, 40, 50 years of conversation to, to be had. And, you know, I'm, I'm being quite conservative when I say that. But the reality of it is, is if we can spur that conversation, it can influence the development of the science. At least I believe so. And that was The Week in Health Law. You can find Professor Bayliss on Twitter, at Francoise Bayliss. That's F-R-A-N-C-O-I-S-E-B-A-Y-L-I-S. Need to say Twitter does not do C. Sedillas. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. It was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Well, thanks so much. I had a great time. Show notes are at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week.